you should have received a little note-taking guide so to help you follow along. And uh, I want to talk to you today on the subject of discouragement, God's remedy for discouragement. When was the last time you felt the dark cloud of discouragement covering your life? Does anybody need one of these that didn't get one? Just lift your hand up and, uh, okay, well, that'll do it then. <laughs> when was the, in your notes it says, when was the last time you felt the dark cloud of discouragement covering your life? Have you felt like you constantly have to prove yourself, though no matter what you've done in the past, it's never enough? Have you felt like other people were not doing their part, and as a result, you were doing everything? Have you felt like no one understands the pressures you have been going through? Have you felt like success never seems to come as easy to you as it does to others? Have you felt like you were being unjustly attacked for sincerely trying to do the right thing? That your motivations were always being questioned? Have you been fantasizing of quitting life as you know it? Now, what do I mean by quitting life as you know it? That's when you start entertaining fantasies in your mind about quitting school or if you're married, quitting your marriage or uh, quitting work, you know, that, that kind of situation. Fantasizing about quitting life as you know it. Are you battling with feelings of disappointment, anger, and resentment that you can't put into words? Have you felt like you're trying to do everything right, but everything keeps going wrong for you? Do you find yourself feeling like even God has abandoned you? So this, these, all of us face this at different times. And what, what I'm describing to you are feelings of discouragement. And God wants to minister to you in your discouragement. And today we're going to look at how God does that in a, in a story of a tremendous, incredibly discouraged man and see what we can draw from this story. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 Kings chapter 19, the passages, uh, even though I've given you notes, the, the scriptures are not in the notes, so uh, you'll need to look there, 1 Kings chapter 19, and this chapter, well actually starting with chapter 18, we'll, be start, we'll just talk about 19, but in chapter 18 it tells the story of the greatest triumph of Elijah's ministry, where in one day he calls down fire from heaven kills 450 prophets of Baal, and declares the end of a drought and famine by praying for rain from heaven. He did all that in one day. That was a pretty amazing story right there. I couldn't believe it was all jammed into one chapter. But as chapter 19 begins, Elijah is overwhelmed by a threat from Jezebel the queen. So let's see what happens here. This is uh, 19 starting with verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid, and he rose, and he ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. So Jezebel gives Elijah a 24-hour warning. Uh, if her primary goal was to kill him, why not just go after him? I don't think that's what she wants to do. I think what Jezebel is trying to do is to discredit 
Elijah. Because there have been all these people that have been stirred up now, new disciples that have risen up to see because they saw the mightiness of God in the way Elijah dealt with this situation. And so she's not just trying to kill him. If she had wanted to kill him, she could have sent an assassin and killed him immediately. But instead she warns him because she wants people to see his reaction. She wants to discredit him in front of all these disciples and all those who had seen him defeat the prophets of Baal. And, uh, you know, this is an important thing for us to understand. The devil doesn't just want to kill you. He wants to discredit you. You know, he wants to take you out in such a way that not only are you taken out, but everybody you've ever spoken to questions what you've said to them. Every example of your life is called into question. He wants you to be taken out in such a way that you're absolutely discredited. Your enemy wants you to do something crazy while you're discouraged so that you, you're just wiped out. Quit school, quit your job, leave your spouse, abandon your ministry, give up on the paper you have to write. Just, just quit. And he wants you to do it in such a way that it's not just you that are being, that's being affected, but everybody who you've touched is being affected. Now let me ask you a question. Are you on the verge of a terrible decision? That is, you're sitting here today, nobody knows, you know, it's just you and I here talking. Nobody knows what's been going through your mind. Nobody knows what's been happening. But the fact is, you are on the verge, you are on the edge of doing something that will totally undo everything that you have built up to this point with your life. All the things that you've worked for and gone after. The enemy has come after you with such discouragement that you're just ready to, you're ready to quit on the whole thing. Notice in the story that Elijah leaves his servant behind as he continues to run from Jezebel. And when we become discouraged, our tendency is to cut ourselves off from people. And Satan's counting on this because he knows that the people, that when people are alone, they are easy targets. You know, I always think of that scripture where it says Satan roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may de devour. And if you've ever uh, seen on some uh, adventure show on TV or something like that how the lion works, the lions will come and surround a herd of animals and they'll begin to uh, uh, harass the animals and roar and do all that they can because they're trying to isolate. They're trying to get an older animal separated from the herd or a younger animal, vulnerable animal separated from the herd so that they can destroy that one animal. And they, 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 they'll, just, they'll just, just be roaring and harassing and doing all this kind of stuff until they can get that one isolated. And once they get them isolated, they become an easy victim. When we become discouraged, we become ashamed of our thoughts. We don't want to tell anybody what we're thinking or what we're feeling. We, we're, we're like the little kid who feels like he's doing something wrong, and so he goes into the other room and does it, hoping no one will see them in what they're doing. We feel as if what we're facing is somehow unique, and no one can understand it. I'm asking you a question. Are you separating yourself from those close to you, keeping your discouraging thoughts to yourself? These, this is, what I've described here right now is the, is the atmosphere of discouragement, the way discouragement works. And we're not going to be able to go through this whole message today. Maybe we'll finish it another time. But 
I want to talk to you about a few different ways that the Bible shows us that the Lord begins to go after this discouragement. And uh, in your notes, number one, it says this, God ministers to discouragement with physical rest. Look what it says here now. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, it's enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise, eat. And then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And so he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So Elijah leaves his servant, moves deeper into the desert, finds a broom tree and sits under that tiny bit of shade. And he just says, I, I just want to die here. I just, I just, he just prays to die. I don't think he really wants to die because if he really wanted to die... He didn't need to run from Jezebel, just stay there, and Jezebel would have killed him, right? So, so I don't think he really wants to die, but this is what I think. I think he wants to quit. I think he doesn't want to be responsible anymore. I think he wants to go back to, to, to before he ever took up the prophetic mantle. I think he's saying, everything I've done has really not amounted to very much. And I think he's saying, I don't really have anybody who cares for me. I think he's saying, God, where are you when I need you? We're dealing with one discouraged person. And you can't help but ask yourself, how does a person go from killing 450 prophets of Baal, from being part of a miracle where a drought is broken, from just all these amazing things, how does he go from that to this pathetic, heartbroken person? And, you know, one of the things we see is this. When you become physically and emotionally exhausted, you become vulnerable to discouragement. In your notes, it says this, the great coach of Notre Dame, Newt Rockney, said this, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Everybody say that. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. You know, you cannot keep up the fight if you become physically weary. I remember uh, one time many years ago, I... I uh, took a trip to India. It was the first time I'd ever gone to India. This was back, I think, 1983 or something like this. First time I'd ever gone to India. I was going with Carl Carlton Spencer, who was then the president of the school here. And uh, I was like maybe 26 years old, 27 years old, just getting started in, uh, in uh, ministry. And uh, this was like a little, uh, you know, kind of an impartation time where Carlton would get to impart to me a little bit. So I flew by myself to India. He had come from someone, somewhere else, flew, flew to India, was there for three weeks, and really was, really, uh, I wasn't prepared for the dramatic cultural shift that there was there. And that three weeks was a really hard three weeks. Everything was hard. I was 
the food I couldn't, didn't like, the, I was sick, I was, uh, I was, everything was strange, every situation was weird. I remember when I came off the plane, all these kids ran at me and started grabbing my bags and pulling them out of my hands. I didn't know what the heck was going on. I was totally, totally lost. I was there for, for three weeks in that environment, and then I had to fly home. And I don't know what connections I got to fly home, but it was easily 40-plus hours of flying, stopping an airport, flying, stopping airports, the flying, stopping airport. And somewhere, it was after I got to the United States, it was somewhere in the sky between California and New York, I totally lost it. I just started weeping in the, in the plane. You know, I mean, I just started sobbing and crying. And, and I don't know what the people thought. You know, here's this adult, you know, just totally, I was just broken. I don't know what to describe. I was just worn, absolutely worn out, right? The thought of having to, the plane stopping again and having to change planes and get onto another plane, I just could not bear the idea of doing that. Has anybody ever gotten that tired? Listen, fatigue makes cowards of us all. You're here at school, you know, if you're going night and day and, and uh, you, know, making, you know, you make some poor decisions on, on, uh, on your, what you're doing in the evenings and, and stuff like that, and you get worn out. If you get worn out, discouragement will stick to you. Discouragement will get a hold of you and will pull you down. It will distort your perspective about everything. It will mess you up. You need to go to bed. You need to rest, you know? Seriously, I'm dead serious. You need to rest. Fatigue makes cowards of us all, right? You need to rest, and this is exactly what happens. The, the Lord takes Elijah, he says, before I can help Elijah spiritually, because that's what's gonna happen in this passage, he's gonna help Elijah spiritually in this, in this next little pit. But before I can help him spiritually, i got to help him physically. See? You know, it's first the physical, first the natural. If, my, if he's not straightened out physically, then he's never going to be able to hear what he needs to hear spiritually. Are you with me? Okay, so this is, a, this is an important, uh, uh, important issue. You know, some of us have um, issues, physical issues. Sometimes there's medication that is involved. And uh, let me just encourage you, you know, I, you know so we're in an atmosphere of faith, an environment of faith here, and sometimes people can get kind of a mentality of, I don't, I don't need, you know, my medication, I'm praying, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Don't, don't do that. Do, take care of yourself. Take your pill. Do what you're supposed to do. Do, do that stuff until the doctor gives you a, a pass on, on, uh, on things. And don't just do stuff by yourself. Just decide you're going to stop doing this. Doing so Medication is not all bad. Sometimes medication is absolutely imperative, helpful, critical, keeps us moving together. But if those issues are not dealt with, we cannot go after the deeper spiritual things that we see the Lord does. So, so, so first he ministers to him physically. And then number two in your notes, it says this, God ministers to discouragement with his presence. This is what happens next. Then he came there to a cave, and he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, tore down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, 
and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind, like the one we had here the other day, was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, and the Lord was not in the earthquake. Just had a huge earthquake in Manila. And, or no, it has a volcano going off in Manila, an earthquake in Puerto Rico. After the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. Australia right now, right, just covered with fire just right now. And after the fire, the sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle. So he takes his cloak, he's kind of, kind of put it over across his face. And he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then I said, so, so now God is saying, God is speaking to him. When God asks you questions, it reveals your heart. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So God is wanting to minister to Elijah with his presence. But there's an attitude that Elijah has. You know, but first we're ministering to the, to the external. He's tired, he's exhausted. God ministers to that. But there is something in Elijah right now. In your notes it says this, when discouragement sticks to us, it's because there is something sticky in us. Our hearts need to be cleansed. Something needs to happen. And we see this in Elijah, Elijah, this self-centered speech. I have been very zealous for the Lord. You know, everybody is gone and left but you. You know, they seek my life to take it away. I'm under attack. And, and, and as a result of this attitude that he has, he, this self-centered pattern of thinking, this, this discouragement is sticking to him. Uh, in your notes I put down here, you can look at the pattern. He says this. I've given all and done my best. That's, you know, the, the Lord says to him, you know, uh, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, I've given my all and done my best. I have been zealous for the Lord. And what do we see there? We see pride and self-justification. You know, the Lord says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? I've, Lord, I've given my all and I've done my best. I, I, I've done it, you know. And there's pride and self-justification. And then you see, he says, I'm the only one really trying. The sons of Israel have, have forsaken you. So he said, you know, he's comparing himself. I'm the only one who's really been given an effort. He's just filled with this bitterness and resentment, uh, it, it, you know, in his life. Just, just, just there. And this is why discouragement is all over him is because this stuff is going on. The Lord couldn't minister that till he dealt with him physically and helped him physically. But now God's going after this internal stuff in his, inside of him. He says, now I'm under attack and, and unjustly suffering. That's what he says. I'm under attack. It's, everything is against me. And we see this fear and unbelief. They seek my life. And in a sense, he's kind of blaming God. He's saying, you know, here I've been, I've been your servant. I've done so many things. You know, I've, I've put myself on the line. And look what you've allowed to happen to me, God. You allowed this to happen to me in this situation, this, this circumstance that's there. 
And uh, God wants to bring healing to Elijah, but this healing can only come with repentance. He says, he says you know, what are you, what are you up to? You know, what are you doing here, Elijah? What's he looking for him to say? Look, look in your notes. This is what God is looking for. Number one, he says, this is what he wanted to hear from Elijah. I can see the reason I ran is I took my eyes off of you and I trusted in myself. Not, you know, I'm, I've given all, I've done my best. He, he says, I can see the reason I ran is I took my eyes off of you and trusted in myself. What is that? That's repentance and humility. How about this one? This is what he wants to hear from Elijah. So many prophets have given their lives for you. I can't understand why you choose to destroy, why you chose me to destroy the prophets of Baal. He's looking for gratitude and appreciation. I can't understand. You know, so many have done so much, and the fact that you put your hand on me to do anything worthwhile, I can't hardly believe that, Lord. Gratitude and appreciation. What is he looking for? Number three, the same God who enabled me to overcome the prophets of Baal can take care of Jezebel. Whatever happens, Lord, I trust you. I put my life into your hands. I put my life into your hands. That's trust and surrender. See, the problem is, if we have the wrong attitudes, this pride and resentment and bitterness and all, and this who am I and all this kind of stuff, we become sticky and discouragement gets a hold of us and we can't break out. We can't, we can't do it. You know, recently I heard someone speaking and they said, they said, they were talking and they said, they said, what's the opposite of humility? What's the opposite of humility? And I was sitting thinking about it, and then the person gave the answer. They said, the opposite of humility is entitlement. What is entitlement? Entitlement is when I feel like you owe me something. Listen, you know, I've been around here for a long time, over 40 years I've been I've, I've been here. And I've done a lot of stuff, you know, started ministries and built the church across the way and gave these years here as president of the school. If I allow to come inside of me some kind of a spirit that says, you know what, I'm, I'm the president of this place here. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, you know, people should realize they owe me a little something around here. I've given my whole life to this place, right? I've given my whole life. They should, you know, people should be respecting me. People should be honoring me. The moment that gets into my spirit, it's the opposite of humility. When I feel like I'm owed something, now, you know, and, and, you know, instead of having a spirit that says, oh, Lord, the fact that you would have used me at all is a miracle. The fact that you'd have put your hand on my life, I can't hardly believe it. If I feel like I'm owed something, people somehow owe me a debt. I'm entitled. You know, you should be given. You owe me a debt of respect. You owe me a debt of honor. You owe me a debt of this. You owe me a debt of that. When, if I have that inside of me, discouragement clings to me. It, I'm constantly feeling disappointed the way people are interacting with me or the way people are, you know, and this kind of thing, it's, it's creepy, but it gets into your, it can get into your spirit. It can get into your life. And even here right now, I'm, what I'm trying to say to you is this. If you have discouragement, well, maybe you're physically 
in trouble. You know, you're, you're tired out. But let me ask you this question. Are you, is there something in your attitude that has somehow made you sticky for discouragement and caused these situations over and over again to make you feel discouraged? There's a poem I, I really like I, I want to share with you. I, it's not in your notes, but l- let me just share with you. It says, when God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him with mighty blows, converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying, and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks, when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses, and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he is about. You know, some of you are you're here. Some of you are here for, you know, you're at EBI and C. Some of you are here for Ephesus. Uh, with friends are here with uh, Hella Mission and all this. Listen, I want to, you know, God has brought you here. You want to know why? Let me tell you why right here. He hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him. He's, he, he, he is dealing with you. He's going after you in some place. Why? Because he wants to remove that stickiness out of your soul so that when you're in the middle of the battle in the days ahead, discouragement isn't going to be able to, to, to rob you and destroy you and get you to make that horrible discrediting decision that, that will wipe you out in some kind of way. Okay, let's look at number three. God ministers to discouragement with renewed purpose. God ministers to discouragement with renewed purpose. The Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Haziel king of Aram. So he gives him a bunch of jobs to do now. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shebat, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall come about, the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. God uses discouraged, in-process people, and that's what he does with Elisha. He takes Elisha and he says to him, okay, you know, he's, he challenges him, he speaks to him, and then he... he he, he says, okay, I'm going to empower you. I'm going to use you. Uh, you know, you may be sitting thinking to yourself, I can't do anything because I'm discouraged. I'm telling you right now, if all the discouraged people stopped doing anything, nothing would be happening around here. This is, uh, you know, it's just discouragement is part of the battle. You've got to learn how to get over it and how to fight through it, how to move through it, let God minister to you, dealing with it. Let me read this to end up this, this last little illustration. Agassiz, the famous naturalist, was interested in the metamorphosis that occurs as a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. He found a chrysalis on a branch one day, 
And being careful not to disturb it, he cut the branch and brought it to his desk. And day after day, he watched it, waiting for the chrysalis to split and the butterfly to emerge. And finally, a crack appeared. And little by little, he could see the struggling creature inside, breaking the strands wound around it, uh, it one by one. And the creature would struggle and struggle and then fall back exhausted. And then it would struggle again. And finally, only a few strands of the cocoon still held the butterfly in prison. And Agassiz, having a, a compassion, reached into his door, drawer and took out a pair of scissors. And being careful not to touch the butterfly, he snipped those last few strands. And the cocoon, cocoon fell open and out crawled the butterfly. And to his dismay, the butterfly never flew. It crawled all of its life. In discussing this circumstance with another naturalist who had conducted a special study of butterflies, uh, he asked why the butterfly didn't fly. And his friend explained, you doomed it to a life of a cripple by sparing it from the struggle. The butterfly requires the intense struggle of breaking out of the cocoon to initiate circulation in its wings. And by removing the struggle, you doomed it to an un." fulfilled life you know we, we fight so hard to try and live a life without problems to live a life without struggle to live a life without battle not realizing that the struggle and the battle and the problems are the very thing that is enabling us to become the person God wants us to be and I want to ask you today if you will freshly surrender to the struggle. If you'll freshly surrender, if, you, if you'll say, Lord, show me whatever is sticky inside of me. Search me, O oh God. See if there's any wicked way inside of me. Show me whatever is sticky inside of me so that I can become the person that you want me to be, so I can move out in that way. Uh, can we just bow our heads and our hearts right now? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We're beginning a semester. We're about to go into prayer week where we're going to be able to spend literally hours in the presence of the Lord. And I believe the Lord is looking for a fresh surrender as we begin that week. For us to say to him, Lord, do that thing you do. Minister to me with your presence. Do that thing you do where you deal with that self-centered spirit that's inside of me. And you enable me to become that person that you want me to be. Do that thing you do inside of me. Don't leave me to myself. If that's your prayer this morning as you're preparing for this prayer week that's coming up, would you just lift both your hands in the air right now? Just lift them up. And you're just saying, you're saying, Lord, I give you permission. Hammer me. Do what you need to do. Take out of me whatever it is that would, that would allow discouragement to cling to me. Take it out of me, Lord. Show yourself. Work on me mercilessly, ruthlessly. Work on me, Lord. Make me the person that you want me to be. Don't allow one, one little bit of time here at Elam to be wasted. Use it, Lord. Use all of it, Lord, to change me and make me the person you want me to be. 
Lord, I thank you for it right now. I trust you for it. I give myself to you. Do what you do, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. God's got good plans for us this week, this coming week.